Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for that moment uh, this morning when we came out of sleep and you turned the lights on again in our consciousness and we woke up, our hearts beating, our lungs working, our digestive system doing what it does. Lord, we recognize that your hand is the hand that sustains our very lives. And then as we went to our kitchen and took food out, we recognize that as your provision for us to sustain us. We recognize also, Lord, the communication that we've already enjoyed and had this morning is of you. Lord, you are with us in every small way and in every large way and in every in-between way. And we thank you for your presence with us. The promise is true that you will never leave us or forsake us. You are with us and we praise you and we thank you for that. And now, Lord, as we look into your word again and see how you have been present with your people throughout all of redemptive history, in fact, may we rejoice and be encouraged by this and come into greater praise of you because of what we see in your word in the scriptures. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And this mighty act of God is known, of course, as the Exodus. But why did God bring his people out of Egypt? What was the precise reason he freed his enslaved people? What, what was God's purpose in releasing the Hebrew people from their bondage under Pharaoh? Well, as an answer to that sort of question, we might be quick to say, God delivered his people from Egypt because in mercy, he simply wanted them to be free from a very terrible situation. Or we might answer by saying, God freed his people from Egypt because his plan, after all, was to bring them into the promised land. Or we might say, God released his people from Pharaoh simply because he wanted to, to demonstrate something about his supreme power. And certainly, there is some truth in each of those answers. No doubt about it. But did you know that scripture actually spells out God's specific reason for bringing his people out of Egypt by his mighty hand. And that reason that is given explicitly in the 29th chapter of Exodus is not any of those that we just mentioned. So come with me to Exodus chapter 29. If you have a Bible, please open it there. Exodus chapter 29 comes after four, four entire chapters, four whole chapters of God's detailed instructions for the construction of the wilderness tabernacle. Exodus 29 is largely about consecrating priests for the tabernacle. And the chapter also includes several instructions for the offering of various sacrifices. 
But what I want us to zero in on here is the tail end of this chapter, the tail end of Exodus 29, where God says specifically and explicitly that the reason he brought his people out of Egypt was so that he might dwell with them. In Exodus 29, 46, God says, listen to this very carefully, it's astonishing. And they shall know that I am Yahweh their God, the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Now, did you catch that? The whole reason for the Exodus says God in his word, the whole reason for bringing the people out of Egypt was so that he might dwell among his people, be present with his people, live in the midst of his people, relate to his people in an intimate, laser-beamed fashion, like he once did in the Garden of Eden. I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. To quote Christopher right here, he says, the very purpose of redemption, the very purpose of bringing the people out of Egypt was so that God should dwell among his people. Isn't it amazing? So think of it, friends, all those plagues on Egypt and the Passover, and the miracle at the Red Sea. It was all so that God might once again be up close and personal, intimately present, living amongst his people, not unlike he did in the days of the Garden of Eden. Because God knows, listen, God knows that where he is, there is his beauty, amen? his abundance, his light, his life, his righteousness, his strength, his sustaining power, his holiness, his glory, his help, his goodness, his ear, his love. Suddenly I'm louder speaking of ears. <laughs> his faithfulness, his safety, all these things, his presence, amen? And it's in the tabernacle, inside that rectangular, divinely designed tent, in which there were two main sections, it's in this tabernacle, this is where God decided, all by himself, that he would dwell amongst his people in laser-beamed fashion as they traveled with him to the promised land. Now, what we notice in the book of Exodus is that the story of Exodus both starts and ends with building projects, but two very different building project. So at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the building project is a forced project as the enslaved Hebrew people are required 
by Pharaoh to build store cities for him. And they are doing that under a degrading sort of coercion. But at the end of the book of Exodus, beautifully, it's the God who freed them from Pharaoh by a mighty hand who commands them in the joyous and in the happy project of building a tabernacle, of building a house for God that he might dwell amongst them. And we see something of the, the just sheer significance of the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle in the fact that in the book of Exodus, this is noteworthy, 13 entire chapters are devoted to it. 13. Contrast that with this. Only two chapters are devoted to the actual Exodus out of Egypt. And less than one chapter is devoted to the giving of the Ten Commandments. Isn't that amazing? So God, having this house called the tabernacle that he would indwell to be with the people in their camp, is such an important and such a significant thing that 13 whole chapters are devoted to it. First, chapters 25 through 31 of Exodus, which detail God's blueprint that he hands down for the tabernacle. And then chapters 35 through 40, detail the actual construction. So again, 13 <laughs> entire chapters. As Moses writes the book of Exodus, he is just incredibly leisurely and detailed and even quite repetitive concerning the tabernacle and all the details of it. For chapter after blessed chapter, he does this because the tabernacle is just so heavily and massively important. And when the construction of the tabernacle is finally complete, all its various pieces are built, they're crafted, they're put in place, then comes the very last chapter of the book of Exodus. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 40, the very last chapter of the book of Exodus. This wonderful climactic moment when the glory of Yahweh, God of Israel, fills the place. In Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, we have a double repetition of the phrase, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Just to emphasize the point, it's there twice. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As Michael Morales explains it, this filling of the tabernacle is a nothing short of a cataclysmic event. He says, the God of heaven in all his thunderous majesty has arrived the advent of Yahweh to dwell with his people on earth, Eden regained. Eden regained. Now I invite you to think through this with me, my friends. Meditate on this. The tabernacle was filled with the glory of the Lord. That, that little tent structure in the wilderness. 
was filled with the glory of the Lord. But, but the Bible promises that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Amen? Amen. The whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And in fact, God filling the whole earth with his glory is a regular prayer item for Israel. So for example, Psalm 57.5 and 57.11, let your glory be over all the earth, the psalmist prays. Psalm 72.19, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Psalm 108 verse 5, let your glory be over all the earth. So the tabernacle being filled with the glory of God is like, we need to see, it's like a microcosm. It's like a miniature of what God intends for the whole earth that will one day be filled with his glory. Track with me here. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, God's glory covered the place. Amen? God's glory was everywhere. The, the original creation, the garden, was filled with his glory. In a very real sense, the garden was God's sanctuary before the tabernacle sanctuary. The garden was what we might call God's creational tabernacle. His creational tabernacle. The garden was his dwelling place with his people. But with Adam and Eve's fall into sin, there was then that tragic, as we looked at last week, that tragic exile, tragic exile away from God's presence. As Morales said in that quote we read moments ago, the tabernacle is Eden regained. Eden regained indeed. It's no wonder at all that the tabernacle is styled and designed by God with all sorts of Eden-like features. The tabernacle is Eden regained. Eden had been God's earthly dwelling place where the uncontainable God dwelt in laser-beamed fashion with his people. Now the tabernacle is Eden regained. So let's just quickly here talk about six. There are many more, but I limited this to six. Six of the many ways in which the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden are directly and purposefully connected. First, the entrance to the garden had been on the east side. Guess what? The entrance to the tabernacle is also on the east side. Second, according to Genesis 2.15, God had placed Adam in the garden to work it and to take care of it. Two verbs in Hebrew, in the original Hebrew. And those same two Hebrew verbs are found together, very significantly found together in places where the role of tabernacle priests is being described. 
So like Adam in the garden, the priests inside the tabernacle are to work in the tabernacle and to take care of the tabernacle. The priests then become like new Adams in a divinely indwelt sanctuary. Third, all those many precious stones that we talked about last Sunday that were in the garden, sardius, topaz, carbuncle, I don't even know what carbuncle is, <laughs> uh, diamond, emerald, sapphire, and the like, all of those figure abundantly in the tabernacle and on the garments of the high priests who work in the tabernacle. The tabernacle is Eden regained. Fourth, just as the Garden of Eden had featured the tree of life, so the tabernacle features a lampstand with seven branches shaped in the form of an almond tree. Almond trees burst out with life earlier in the, in the season than most other trees do. And as Bruce Waltke has put it, the seven branches of the tabernacle lampstand probably symbolized, he says, the complete light of God's presence. The complete light of God's presence. And that light from the lampstand lit up the 12 loaves, the bread of the presence. The 12 loaves symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was all a beautiful picture of God's, well, the light of God, God's presence with his people, Eden regained. Fifth, remember how when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden, God stationed cherubim at the entrance to guard it, to guard the tree of life? Well, in the tabernacle, we have all sorts of depictions, artistic depictions of cherubim that are woven onto the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And then inside the most holy place, of course, we have the two cherubim that are built onto the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And those two cherubim have their wings spread out and their heads facing down significantly toward the atonement cover of the Ark and below that atonement cover, inside the ark, is the law of God, suggesting that access, listen, access to the presence of the holy God who resides between the cherubim's wings will now be granted only through atonement, sacrifice, and through obedience to his word. And then finally, in sixth place, most crucially, most fundamentally, if you were with us last Sunday, you, you might remember that in the Garden of Eden, we had that description of God walking, remember? Walking with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It, it's an amazing passage, Genesis 3.8. God walked with Adam and Eve he walked with his people in his creational sanctuary, up close and present, in intimate fashion. Well, later on in the Old Testament, in 2 Samuel 7, a very important chapter, 2 Samuel 7, verse 6, David listens and he hears God describe how God walked 
moved about in the tabernacle, present there with his people Israel, and the exact form of the Hebrew verb there in 2 Samuel 7 verse 6 is precisely the same as it had been in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8, where God's walking with Adam and Eve had been described. So God had been present, walking about, moving about with his people in Eden, and God was again present now, walking, moving about with his people in the tabernacle. The tabernacle, my friends, is Eden regained. And as God's glory fills the completed tabernacle, we have a truly magnificent moment Once again, I'm going to read that description from Michael Morales. He says, now the God of heaven in all his thunderous majesty has arrived. The advent of Yahweh to dwell with his people on earth, Eden regained. And God's presence in the tabernacle was a super strength. That's too weak a word, probably. But it was a super strength presence as it had been in the garden. A metaphor might be this. In the most holy place, okay, so in the tabernacle, the most holy place where God dwelt between the cherubim, it was like the nuclear reactor with its glowing core. But the divine radioactivity, so to speak, that emanated out of the core, it emanated out to other areas of the tabernacle. The divine radiation, if we can put it that way, touched every item in the tabernacle and affected every item in the tabernacle. And this is confirmed for us very dramatically in Numbers chapter four. So in Numbers four, The Kohathites are put in charge of carrying the holy things of the tabernacle, the tabernacle's furniture and the various uh, utensils from one campsite to the next, the Kohathites. But the first thing that has to happen before the Kohathites can carry those items is that Aaron and his sons have to go in and pack them up and cover them up Completely. Because God says there that if the Kohathites so much as touch the holy things or look upon the holy things, even for a moment, he says, they will die. The holy things of the tabernacle, the physical items, were all affected by the laser-beamed presence of God himself who dwelt there in the most holy place to touch the holy things or even to look upon the holy things meant that you would die. God's presence in the tabernacle was just that affecting and that palpable. Friends, what a mighty, awesome, beautiful God we have come to worship here this morning. Amen? As we continue our meditation this morning on God's presence in the tabernacle, it's also of interest to us, I think, especially in in Exodus 28 and 29, 
In those chapters, there are lengthy instructions given to uh, the priests who will be working in the tabernacle. And the phrase, very, it's on purpose, the phrase before the Lord occurs 12 times in those two chapters. Aaron is to bear the names of Israel's tribes on his shoulders before the Lord. The Urim and Thummim are to be on Aaron's heart as he goes before the Lord. The gold bells on the hem of Aaron's robe will be heard as he enters the holy place before the Lord. A bull is to be sacrificed for the consecration of the priests, and that sacrifice is to happen before the Lord at the entrance of the tent, etc., etc. So there's this constant repetition of this phrase before the Lord, a very clear reminder that the priests who dressed and who went in to serve in the tabernacle, they were doing it all before the Lord in his presence. The holy God was imminent there, and therefore the priests must never be careless or negligent. They must come to God on his terms. Amen? Just as we, when we come to worship, must come to God on his terms, not our own. They must follow his statutes and, and rules to the letter, everything that he had prescribed. But my friends, God is just so merciful, isn't he? And so kind. God determined that his glory and his presence would fill the tabernacle. And yet he is the awe-inspiring God who cannot be contained, as we talked about last week, right? So just think of this. The God who created every galaxy, including the ones we haven't discovered yet in 2022, the God who made every ocean and every depth of the ocean, he comes down into the tabernacle, this God, on ground level to live in a tent with his people who are trekking through the wilderness just as they lived in tents, so will God. In the dust. <laughs> God does not choose a lofty site for some palatial palace up in the clouds, way up at the top of some mountain, detached from his people, far above his people. No, God decides to live in a tent on the ground, right in the center of their camp as their king with them. Amen? Amen. Oh, this is just such good news, my friends. The God who is not bound, consider it, he's not bound by space. He's not bound by time. He comes to live, though, in the time-bound, space-bound world of his frail, little human creatures. Isn't God kind? Isn't God merciful? Isn't he full of grace? He identifies with his people. He comes alongside his people. He is present with his people in their earthly circumstances. He makes provision for them because he knows they are sinners who have offended his holiness, but he wills to be with them. 
and his tent is built of earthly stuff, just like the tents of his people, physical stuff. And it's a mobile structure. Think of that. God lives in a mobile home. Right? It's a mobile structure that can be packed up, carried from one location to another. God and his presence goes with his people to each new location. God is on the move and mobile with his journeying people. As they are in transit, so is he. He goes with his people and he goes with us. Isn't God good and kind? God, God knows, listen, God knows how much his presence matters for weak, fragile, vulnerable, mortal human beings like you and like me. And so he makes all these allowances. He makes this provision in his determination to be with his people. Now, what we notice at the very end of the book of Exodus is something rather surprising. Exodus 40, 35 tells us that Moses was not able to enter the freshly completed tabernacle. What? Moses wasn't allowed to enter the tabernacle because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled it. So the picture right at the end of Exodus is a picture of God. He's got the keys. (laughs) He's inside his house. He's dwelling there in the tabernacle, but no human guests, not even Moses can come in. And if Moses can't come into the tabernacle, then nobody can. And it's that tension that sets up the very next book of scripture, the book of Leviticus. In the first 10 chapters of Leviticus, God details the procedures that sinful people, including Moses and Aaron, must follow in order to enter into his holy presence in the tabernacle. Leviticus 1 through 7 are chapters that detail the procedures for sacrifices. Then Leviticus 8 gives commands for the consecration of priests. And then Leviticus chapters 9 and 10 are about Israel undertaking the initial tabernacle procedures. What becomes clear in those first 10 chapters of Leviticus is that, listen, if we as human beings would come close to the holy God, we need atoning sacrifice to cover our sins And we need a mediator, a priest, who offers the sacrifice. And my friends, the one whose advent we celebrate at this time of year, Jesus Christ, is both our mediator, our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he himself is the atoning sacrifice through whom we gain access to God's presence. In the words of Hebrews 2.17, listen, Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God who makes propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And as Hebrews 9.26 puts it, our high priest Jesus has put away sin, how? By the sacrifice of himself. And isn't it marvelous that the gospel writer John, in John 1.14, he uses so much tabernacle language as he describes the coming into this world, Christmas time, the coming into this world of this high priest and atoning sacrifice, Jesus Christ. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there famously is literally pitched his tent, tabernacled among us. The second person of the Godhead became flesh. He came down to the dust and to the trouble of this earth. And there's lots of trouble these days, isn't there? And he pitched his tent with us. He camped with us on our level. He dwelt among us. He moved about with us. He tabernacled among us, his presence with us, God with us. Christians sing the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, who to save us took our nature, soul and body, flesh and blood. God, he saw man's cruel bondage, who in death's dark dungeon lay. Man, he came to fight our battle, and for us, he won the day. Alleluia, alleluia to the incarnate Son of God, who for us as man hath conquered in our own true flesh and blood. Hallelujah indeed. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And John continues, notice more tabernacle language here. He continues in the same verse by saying, and we have seen what? His glory. Glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Just as God's glory filled the tabernacle, my friends, so the person of Jesus Christ, tabernacling with his people, is the glory of God. He is the glory of God. And, and the furniture in the tabernacle, for example, the lamp that represented the tree of life, Jesus says what? I am the light of the world. He is the menorah, the lampstand, who gives light to the world. And what about the bread of the presence inside the tabernacle? Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Jesus came as God's presence and glory, tabernacling on earth. Jesus is the high priest, and he is the sacrifice who is offered to the glory of the Father for the benefit of sinners like us. And Jesus is the lamp that lights the world, and he is the sustenance of his people, the bread of life. Jesus is God's determination to abide with undeserving people like you and I. He is the new tabernacling presence of God on earth. 
And my friends, the, we're going to end here. The crucified, risen Jesus, the light of the world, the bread of life who came to tabernacle amongst us calls to you this morning. He calls to you. First, he calls to you to come in your desperation. Open up your empty hands because you've got nothing. And receive him. No one can come to God except through him through the blood of his cross that atones for our sin against God. He calls to you to confess your sin, to turn from your sin, to receive the forgiveness that he has provided. And having received him, he says to you and he says to me, forgiven sinners, he says in John 15, 4, abide in me. It's the second person of the Godhead talking. Abide in me and I in you. Remain in him, stay with him, dwell in his holy presence as he dwells with you. And he says there that in order for you to bear fruit in this life that is pleasing to God, you must abide in him. You must dwell with him, remain in him, and abiding in him means obeying what he has commanded in the power of the Holy Spirit that he supplies, loving him as he loves you, doing what the Father has commanded. This week, my believing friends, know this, that his tabernacling presence is with you in every situation as you live out your life in obedience to him, and as you bear fruit as a sinner saved by his grace for his glory. Amen. Let's pray together. It is, Father, an in incalculable gift that you have given to the world. Jesus Christ, your son, and you have gone to the extravagant lengths, not only of sending him in the flesh, but having him die on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Those who were your enemies, you came to save sinners. And we are so thankful in this Advent season for that. Lord, we look forward to his coming again, to his return. And I pray, Lord, that we would live circumspectly in obedience to you in the meantime, in the power that you give us. Thank you for enabling us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.